Star Trek has never been just one thing. While we tend to think we know what Star Trek is now, its worldview, themes, and approach to storytelling, as well as its backstory, and even characterizations, all came together over time and were shepherded by diverse voices, including those of the fans after the 60s series ended. The ideas we associate with Trek are flexible, shifting and changing over time, depending on who is writing it, and even who is watching. In this sense, then, Star Trek itself is a mirror universe. Or, to put it another way, Star Trek's real mirror universe is our universe. In this podcast, we'll be gazing into the mirror that is Trek, and focusing on how that reflection can shift and change. As Garrick once said, Star Trek, like beauty, is in the eye of the beholder. The original Star Trek series had never been hugely successful in the ratings. Famously, it had come close to cancellation after Season 2, and its renewal was helped by a massive fan campaign, though the exact degree to which the fans saved Trek is somewhat up for debate. Nevertheless, in spite of this, the show aired its final episode in June of 1969, ironically, just a little over a month before Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. Not long after, Trek was sold into syndication, and it was here that it became a massive success. Desilu Studios, which had produced Trek, was bought by Paramount, which reaped the rewards, and who realized that they had in Trek a valuable example of what we now call intellectual property. The result was that almost immediately after it ended, Trek was resurrected in dozens of new media, including animation, books, comics, role-playing games, and toys, and with serious attempts to bring it back as either another TV show or a movie, which of course eventually bore fruit at the end of the 1970s. But while all this was going on, what had really been keeping Trek alive were the fans. The first Star Trek convention took place in 1972, and they continued to grow bigger year after year. Trek fanzines had begun while the original series was still airing, and the monthly sci-fi magazine Starlog, founded in 1976, started off with an exclusive focus on Star Trek. What's more, the first generation of Star Trek fans were beginning to cross over into becoming authors or contributors to Star Trek spin-offs, and the line between official and unofficial Trek media became blurry. It was the Wild West of Star Trek, a time when the fans had full say in what Trek was and what it could be going forward. Hi, welcome once again to the Mirror Universe Star Trek podcast. I'm Adam Prosser. And I'm Douglas McDonald-Norman. And uh, so today we're, um, we're, we're not specifically organizing these uh, chronologically. We, the first ones we're, we're looking in something of a chronological order. We were looking at it more in thematic terms, but it does make sense to look at uh, a specific era of Star Trek at this point, uh, which is the mostly the 1970s and to a certain degree the early 80s, and to a certain degree the late 60s. Uh, what we're looking at here is the part of Star Trek that was not official, not licensed, and uh, it's easy to look at this particular point because there was no official Star Trek for about a decade uh, and once the uh, original series ended, other than the animated series, I suppose. Um, so uh, this is something I always find really, really, really fascinating, uh, and I really wanted to delve into it. Um, Douglas, how much of this stuff, what, have, what what's your experience with some of the uh, fan, the Star Trek fan both official and spin-off media, both unofficial and spin-off media of Star Trek. I'm so glad you asked that, Adam. I found <laughs> Star Trek in large part through this media. A lot of my memories of the original series aren't of the TV series itself. They are of the complete collection of James Blish novelizations, which we had in my high school library when I was growing up. When those episodes, when the episodes on TV differ from what was in the novelizations, by and large, what I remember and what I regard as authoritative isn't how it happened with William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy, it's how James Blish wrote it down. And so I had a very traditional Star Trek upbringing, if you like, that for many fans in the 1970s, their authoritative record of the episodes, without VCR, without DVD, without a way of easily accessing the episode in question, wasn't what happened on screen, it was through the novels, and so too with me. I similarly came to Star Trek in large part through the Star Trek fandom. I was actively involved on a Star Trek bulletin board from the early 2000s onwards, and so I was fairly enmeshed in fan culture. I read a lot of the spin-off novels. I 
engaged to a limited extent through um, fan debates about fanon, about conjecture, about different conceptions of what happened and shipping and slash and all that. And so this is a really, really fascinating era for me too because it's where the parts of Star Trek that have been the biggest experience of my time as a Trekkie really began and where they, if anything, enjoyed the greatest prominence that they ever did in shaping what Star Trek was. Yeah. Um, It's funny that you mentioned the Blish novelizations because I'm realizing that was my major exposure to classic Star Trek. And it was also in my school library, oddly enough. Uh, I think we literally had some of them in my uh, classroom, and it was just kind of, we had a reading period, and I grabbed some of them because it said Star Trek on it. Um, Oddly, I don't remember if I was into Next Generation at that point, or if I just... uh, if I just thought, hey, it's science fiction-y, and I read it, and I did enjoy them, but it didn't really make me want to go check out the show at that time. I was pretty young. I think I was like not eight or nine at that point. Um, and I did read Spock Must Die, which was, uh, I believe, the first official Star Trek novel. Um, and uh, But what I really got into, of course, I, I was the next generation guy. I got into it uh, right around the time that uh, the... Uh, the show was in its third season, I think. And um, the uh, the um, I, I really got into some of the spinoff novels, uh, which were not, you know, it, it, that's not so much the era that we're talking about here because things were getting a little more firmed up at this point. The, the continuity and the canon were a little more uh, defined, even though they weren't obsessive about... Uh, defining uh the non-continuity star trek spin-off stuff at that era either but clearly between the movies and next generation they'd now locked down a lot of stuff in a way they had not uh during the 70s because in the 70s it was you had the show and that was it everything else was up to your imagination and uh that's why it's really uh that's why it's really interesting to me because at that point you had all these different people working on it both behind the scenes to launch a new tv and a tv show and a new movie uh, but you also had people writing comics and, and novels. And as we discussed in the last episode, Gene Roddenberry contradicting himself all over the place. And uh, all these different versions of what Star Trek might be at that particular point. And um, a lot of this actually, uh, you know, did cross over into uh, what we would consider the canon, the canon of Star Trek. Um, starting with... Um, something that we we dug up for this podcast, which is uh, what I think is the very first Star Trek fanzine, uh, first published in 1967. Uh, it's called Spockanalia, and uh, it was published by uh, uh, Sherma Comerford and uh, Devra Langsam, uh, who were big in the Star Trek fandom of that era. And this was like right after the first season of the original series. Spockanalia is fan. Fantastic. I am so glad you showed it to me. It is easily, even given that I have watched a fair bit of Star Trek to re- record, to rehearse for this podcast, reading Spockanalia was the most fun I had researching. So what it, what it is, in large part, is taking Star Trek seriously. Looking at, for example, how does Vulcan physiology work? How is Vulcan society set up? filling in the gaps in what we see in TV and trying to make it work in a scientific or logical way. And it's not purely an exercise in wish fulfillment, you know, this idea that if you colour in all the gaps of the universe and make it as real as you possibly can, then maybe a portal will open and you get to step through. It's not directed towards that. What it really is is a really fun exercise in imaginative, imaginative fiction looking at Star Trek as sociology, looking at Star Trek as biology, looking at Star Trek as anatomy. It's effectively telling Star Trek stories in different ways and seeing how Star Trek can retain its interest and its fascination when looked at through different lenses. And what it speaks to, as you've said, is this Wild West era of Star Trek in which anything is possible, in which you can tell lots of different stories, in which there is so much to explore wide open vistas waiting to be coloured in and new opportunities for exploration of the human condition. And that's part of why I'm 
so fascinated by this era because it really is an era in which Star Trek was unfenced. Yeah, it, it, it's um, it it, it it's not only a uh, 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 an era when you could do and say anything in fan quarters. It's an era in which uh, the two things sort of trickled back and forth. I'd like to point out that Spockanalia has a lot of poetry in it. Uh, a lot of people writing poetry about Spock. Um, one thing that's really fascinating, uh, right from the start, I, I think it's the first thing in the first issue, uh, is um, a poem which is presented as a Vulcan form of poetry or a Vulcan... It's actually a song because it's meant to be played on that Vulcan lute thing that uh, Spock plays. Um, but it's for two voices. And the idea is that you have these two contrasting uh, voices that sing two opposing ideas, but they form a unity by singing together. It's, it's you know, the duality. Uh, and it's a form of song or poetry called Nivar in, in Vulcan, which literally means two voices. And uh, just to show you where this happened, uh, as people who have been watching this season of Discovery know, uh, they, they recently, spoilers I guess if you haven't seen it, um, they revealed that in the far future, Vulcan and, Romula, uh, and Romulus, or the Vulcans and the Romulans, uh, reunite uh, as Spock was intending to do on Next Generation. Uh, he finally, he basically succeeded in his quest to reunite the Vulcans and the Romulans. Uh, and they're, they've, in, in, in honor of that, they've renamed the planet Nivar. So they have now made this uh, fanzine from 1967 uh, canon <laughs> in, in, uh, in, in a really lovely and poetic way, I think. That's, that's a great uh, addition to the Vulcan culture uh, to formalize that and make it part of, uh, make it part of the canon. And, and it's, um, so that gives you a sense of just, how even the fan contributions have become part of the uh, honored history of Star Trek at this point. Uh, I think that's really, I think that's really wonderful, and I think that's uh, a very positive example of how the fan base. We've seen we've seen a lot of toxic fan behavior, especially in the last few years. Uh, this is a lovely example of how fans can really contribute to something and and make a positive contribution uh, to a franchise, which I thought was was really lovely. Well, that discussion of Vulcan duality and of how fan culture can contribute to Star Trek actually segues quite well into a discussion of Spock Must Die, a story so obsessed with Vulcan duality, it's got two spots. Mm -hmm. Spock Must Die is memorable for a couple of reasons. One is that it is the first or one of the first licensed Star Trek novels. The second is that it is by James Blish, who had written the novelizations of practically every episode of the original series and oddly enough is even referred to in some future novelizations that he did of original series episodes the fact that this was in many ways the authoritative way of recording original series episodes for posterity in a time before vcrs before dvds before regular access to reruns that one of his novels was treated as being on par with referring to any other episode speaks to the blurry boundaries of what's canon and what's not. In Spock Must Die, the planet Organia, last seen in Errand of Mercy, is sealed off from the universe by an impenetrable force field. When Spock tries to beam down there, he comes back, split into two. One is right-handed, one is left-handed. Um... Interestingly, the discussion of this involves far more philosophizing about what transporting does to you and whether it is in fact equivalent to being completely vaporized and an identical clone being created than we ever see in the original series. And this is in itself interesting mm -hmm. because the fact that you have a novel written for an audience of presumably Star Trek fans rather than necessarily a wider audience already at this stage means that you can delve into some of the mechanics and philosophy of how the universe works in a much deeper way than you could on screen. This is effectively continuing the Spockanalia project and demonstrates one of the important features of the novels that they have licensed to delve a bit deeper. Mm -hmm. But what's really significant for our purposes in terms of deciding what Star Trek is and what Star Trek canon is, is how Spock Must Die ends. The shield around Organia is revealed to be a Klingon plot. The shield is dispelled. 
The Organians show up on the Klingon homeworld, express their displeasure, and say that they think an appropriate punishment would be if the Klingons were prevented from travelling through space for a thousand years. And then the story ends. There's nothing about how the Klingons managed to get out of this. There's nothing to suggest that this is going to be revoked. It's simply that by the end of Spock Must Die, you just don't have Klingon space travel anymore. Now, this obviously doesn't filter through into any other Star Trek story. There's been quite a few Klingons since Spock Must Die. But it does speak to the fact that Star Trek in those days didn't necessarily have to be completely consistent with one another. Not every story needed to necessarily flow into every other. This is a story in which it made sense for it to end with a cosmic punishment being visited upon the Klingons. Mm. It is ultimately a self-contained story with the ending that works for that story. Subsequent attempts to create a unified canon and a clear sense of where everyone was on particular specified dates or how episodes tie in with each other has to reckon with the fact that that's not inevitable and that the early days of Star Trek licensed fiction explicitly fly in the face of that project. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting because if there's one, as I mentioned last episode, if there's one uh, pop culture uh, entity where uh, you really weren't allowed to get away with that after a while uh, because of the fans, it's Star Trek. Uh, it, it is quite entertaining that uh, that something that uh, over the top, and, and you're right, you know, television especially, uh, for many, uh, many years was sort of a, you know, the, the, the final episode, the hero rides off the sunset and get, well, maybe they wouldn't go so far as to have the hero ride off the sunset and get married. And then next week he's single again, but they, they were pretty, uh, uh, lackadaisical about <laughs> making sure, uh, things got, uh, wrapped up, uh, or things continued in a, in a logical way. Uh, and, and of course, yes, you'd always see Things like, uh, you know, a character could die and it wouldn't matter because we don't have any long-term plans for them. We, we uh, uh, you know, we'd, we'd blow up the world and or blow up a planet and then not not have to think about what happened next time it came back. So it was, it was definitely, but Star Trek is one of the things that definitely tried to, or at least the fan base, really tried to make it sit together and work together in a way that the, the creators of the show didn't care that much about at all. Uh, it's pretty obvious that... Um, you know, all the all the original writers. For instance, uh, the way Vulcan culture slowly evolved on the original series, um, which became very iconic, things like Ponfar, and and even the fact that, uh, you know, the Vulcans were originally, um, uh, you know, the original definition of the Vulcan is that they literally don't have emotions. And then as the show progressed, it became kind of, well, they have emotions, but they, it's, it's a mental technique that they use to, to withdraw their emotions, uh, which is probably the reason they made Spock half-human in the first place, is the idea that he could struggle between his human and Vulcan sides. But that became unnecessary because all Vulcans are doing that anyway, eventually. Um, and uh, that's the kind of thing that, yeah, as you say, the fans uh, like, to, uh, like to expand upon. Uh, much later, uh, we'll probably talk about this in a bit, but um, there was uh, a guy named uh, James, uh, John L. Ford who wrote um, uh, uh, The Final Reflection, which uh, really uh, really fleshed out the Klingon culture. And my understanding is he also wrote a lot of role-playing games, uh, RPGs, um, which did the same thing. And this was the novel that was really putting a, you know, a firm seal on what he'd been doing in the role-playing games with trying to flesh out the, the Klingon culture. Uh, which didn't exist in the original show. They're 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 fairly thinly sketched guys. Again, they're they're space commies in the original show. That's that's about all there is to them. Or they're they're Ming the Merciless as an entire race, if you like, um, with all the racism that implies, unfortunately. Um, and then, of course, they the, they got much richer around the time of not even the movies, really. It was Next Generation that really turned them into what we know as this sort of biker samurai Viking. Uh, uh, culture. Um, and a while it doesn't actually line up with what Ford wrote in that book, um, it you can see how they drew from that, and that became uh, one of the basis for uh, the actual show going forward and the culture going forward. Uh, and there were one or two other things. Do you, have, do you know any other examples of that where it ended up beco becoming formally? James Tiberius Kirk. Um, 
Now, partially, that's an ex- ex- that is partially a cheat because the term Tiberius was used in the animated series. But it flies explicitly in the face of what's seen in the right. second pilot of Star Trek, Where No Man Has Gone Before, in which Kirk's gravestone is clearly demonstrated to be James R. Kirk. <laughs> Checkmate. Now, the anim- when the animated series was produced, although it was produced by a number of the people who'd been involved in the original series, including all but one member of the original cast, it rapidly fell by the wayside and was subsequently deemed to be non-canonical, a term which we'll be discussing at some length today. But one of the aspects that did stick is that reference to James Tiberius Kirk, a term and phrase so iconic that it could even be said to be understood by the general public at large. So fans continued to use that term, and it was ultimately picked up in the canonical series itself in subsequent references. In terms of adoption of fanon ideas, certainly one can see examples from the modern era. So, for example, there's an episode, there's a novel called Dark Mirror, in which the next generation crew travel to the mirror universe as depicted in the original Mirror Mirror, and visit a still extant and still thriving Terran Empire. That was subsequently rejected by the TV show, which suggested that the Terran Empire had fallen. But future instalments did pick up on some of the more interesting aspects of Dark Mirror, which was, what does fiction look like in the Mirror Universe? The Mirror Universe in Dark Mirror involves slightly different... involves, for example, a version of the Merchant of Venice in which either Shylock gets his pound of flesh and it's all well and good because you should uphold your contracts, or alternatively, in which Portia just straight-up murders Shylock. And that's fascinating, and that's actually something which is picked up upon and forms part of the commentary upon Prime Universe fiction in the Enterprise episode In a Mirror Darkly, and that was directly attributed to Dark Mirror by the writers. Mm. So sometimes the series on TV has directly lifted concepts from the novels, But generally, it tends to be by way of inspiration, not so much explicitly adopting concepts, but forming part of a broader milieu in which interesting ideas or interesting ways of looking at things are subsequently adopted by the TV series and played with in a different way. That is, philosophical concepts rather than necessarily building blocks of the universe. Right. Aspects of the mythos, yeah. Uh, If I recall correctly... Um, Star Trek IV uh, had a, a novel-only sequel uh, in which they actually explained what the hell that uh, the probe that had come back and, and messed up <laughs> messed up Earth's oceans was there for. Uh, like, it literally sort of followed on the events of Star Trek IV, um, which is, the, like, that's the, exactly the kind of thing that um, I think uh, you want to do, right? Like, you want to... It wasn't totally necessary for the actual narrative of Star Trek Four, but uh, it's an interesting thing that you want to know about if you're if you're watching Star Trek. Because hey, what was that crazy thing? Um, <clears throat> so I think that's kind of interesting that they've uh, that they they used to do that kind of thing. So that, obviously it did continue well into the '80s and so on. Um, I've uh, never read it, and I'm a bad Star Trek fan, but I do know that there was a Deep Space Nine novel spinoff called A Stitch in Time, and it was written by Andrew Robinson, uh, a.k.a. the actor who played Garrick on Deep Space Nine. And this was, I believe, an attempt to actually flesh out his backstory. Um, A Stitch in Time is the best Star Trek novel of all time, and it is one of the best pieces of Star Trek media full stop. It's based in part upon Andrew Robinson's notes that he would write when he was playing Garrick, so as to give some sense of who the character was and his sense of the character's backstory. It's set in effectively two time frames. Part of it involves picking up where Deep Space Nine leaves off, with Garrick helping to reconstruct a ruined Cardassia and playing a tentative role in the new Cardassian political settlement, but it also involves flashbacks setting up the circumstances under which Garrick left Cardassia, his upbringing, his relationship with his father, etc. And it is brilliant. It is, it is one of the very rare Star Trek novels that works as some, 
on a level other than as Star Trek. That is to say that you are invested in it not so much because these are characters to who have a pre-existing connection or a universe in which you are genuinely already invested, but because it is a really compelling character study of life in a totalitarian fascist society and of a smart and sensitive young man who is ultimately trying to serve conflicting masters. It's brilliant, especially given that he's not a not professional novelist. Um, yeah. Yeah, it, it's really, really good. And actually, one that ties really, really neatly into one of the next topics we need to discuss, because one of the things that it explicitly does, which Andrew Robinson could only do by inference and acting choices on TV, is it explicitly says Garrick is attracted to men. <laughs> there you go. He, he's, yeah, he's bisexual or pansexual in the novel. Indeed, uh, one of the major focuses of the novel is a long-term relationship he has with a woman, which ultimately leads to his exile from Cardassia. But he speaks of his attraction to male characters, um, and it's pretty explicit about sexuality and about the spectrum of human relationships in a way, a way that TV couldn't. And that's obviously at odds with the TV show, but it ties in very neatly to Star Trek fiction, and particularly Star Trek fan fiction's consistent interest in the romantic and personal lives of its characters, particularly same-sex attraction. Yes, and indeed, uh, if I'm not mistaken, what we call slash fiction, which is when, uh, you know, you write fan fiction of the two characters you enjoy on the TV show or movie or novel series that you enjoy uh, making out with each other, usually attri uh, attributed specifically to same-sex uh, makeouts. Uh, <laughs> uh, if I'm not mistaken, that entire... Uh, the, the, the word slash fic came from Star Trek originally, if I'm not mistaken, correct? That's exactly it. It comes from the genre of Kirk slash Spock fan fiction. Right. So much of what we understand of contemporary fandom terms comes from Star Trek. Exactly. The term Mary Sue comes from a notorious fanfic of the 1970s, which was an explicit parody of what we now call Mary Sue fan fiction. Mm. For those uninitiated, a Mary Sue is regarded as an author insert character who's perfect at everything they do and who interacts with the main characters and who is nothing but wish fulfillment on the part of the author. Right. In the initial Mary Sue fic, Lieutenant Mary Sue was on her first day of the Enterprise and thrilled everyone with how brilliant she was, and that was an explicit takedown of what was already a widely recognised genre. Right. But similarly, slash fiction is a term that was picked up from its usage in Star Trek fandom to refer to Kirk slash Spock, and which has become a really widely used term. Right. Uh, do you, I might just speak very briefly about Constance Penley's fascinating work on the origins of slash, fi slash fiction, because I think it's one of the most interesting features of the entire Trek fandom. Yes. So in her book, NASA slash Trek, Constance Penley compellingly argues why slash fiction, and in particular Kirk slash Spock fan fiction, gained such a constituency in the 1970s, especially among female Star Trek fans, and why it has enjoyed such longevity. The relationship between Kirk and Spock is compelling because it is a relationship of compatible equals. That although Kirk is Spock's command superior, they enjoy a relationship based upon mutual respect, trust and appreciation. Each has traits which complements the other. Fans, especially female fans, recognised in this a relationship that was unlike any shared by heterosexual couples on TV. That whereas male-female romantic couplings on TV were based to some extent upon subordination, dominance, inequality, where the man enjoyed a role and a degree of characterization far outstripping that of the female, Kirk and Spock enjoyed a relationship of equals, and in that female fans in particular, invested in slash fiction because it offered potentials for romance, potential for equality, and potential for respect that was not equal by anything else they saw on TV. The Kirk-Spock relationship on TV might not have been intended in that way, but it served this real meaningful role for female fans, and indeed for any fans who sought in fiction romantic relationships that were not based on dominance and subordination. Yeah, it's it's really interesting, and I mean, 
even going a little more broadly than that, um, it really can't be overstated. And if, if this was in any doubt, just going back and looking at Spockanalia, looking at some of the research we did for this, Star Trek fandom was heavily female-driven in the early years. Heavily. Un, un, indisputably. Uh, for all the uh, boys' club aspects that did exist of the show, on the show itself, uh, that were definitely there, um, there was unquestionably... Um, a female fan base, and they are the people who got it renewed for the third season. They're the people who created uh, Star Trek uh, fan conventions, and by extension, the idea of fan conventions in general. Again, there I guess there were comic book conventions starting up around the same time. I'm not sure which actually came first, Star Trek. The first Star Trek convention was in 1972. Uh, it was uh, uh, organized by a woman named Elise Rosenstein. And um, uh, that was, you know, it, it, they booked out a hotel, and, and eventually, I think, by the second or third one, they were getting Leonard Nimoy and, and uh, some of the Star Trek writers to, to appear. Uh, I think superhero comic conventions started up around the same time, so I can't really say that Star Trek was absolutely the first, but it was certainly, you know, one of the bedrocks of what Again, what we call fan culture. And the fact that it was entirely organized by women, and women played such a huge role. Spockanalia, when we read it, it's all women. I don't think there's a single male contributor to the first issue. There are later on. Uh, but I think uh, the first issue is entirely, uh, as I said, two women, Sherma Comerford and Deborah Langsam, a few other contributors. Um, the second issue, interestingly, has uh, uh, a contributor, Lois McMaster, who I assume is the science fiction writer, Lois McMaster Bujold. Uh, she, she went on to the 80s to become a science fiction writer. Uh, of course, again, as we say, there are a lot of uh, science fiction writers who came out of this field. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But yes, it's just, you know, we, we all get a little sick of uh, what we've been hearing in the fan discourse for the last uh, five years of Hey, women, get out of our fan fandom. It's all it's it's been a dudes club, and 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 you women have gotten coming in here and got your cooties over everything. And you look at it, and it's, it's just so absolutely ridiculous. The, the fandom has been female uh, from from jump, and this is these are the origins of what we would call modern fandom, Star yeah. Trek, and absolutely it's yeah. them. I mean, yeah. people complaining about the SJW agenda in contemporary Star Trek. What show have you been watching? <laughs> And I mean, and speaking about uh, Star Trek's contemporary Star Trek's focus upon diversity and representation, part of why the show survived is because the fans recognized and celebrated that. Part of why the show survived is because you had things like slash fiction, in which fans celebrated the fact that this is a franchise which is based, which on that view is based in equality, which is based in respect and diversity. This is a show that has only survived for as long as it has because it is ultimately supposed to provide a welcoming space for people who are not represented in broader societal power structures. And on that note, you, I mean, you said before how, in what ways has this broader universe of Star Trek production, both licensed and fan fiction, affected the show? And this really brings up one of the ways in which there is a striking disparity between what's on TV and what's not, because you have a fan base that, especially in its early years, was dominated by women. You have a fan base that, especially in its early years, was focused upon the representation of queer relationships, which was focused upon um, rejecting a particular settled view of what the future looked like, of using the future as an, a utopian expedient because so many fans were excluded by societal structures in the 1970s. And yet you have a TV series that, over the course of the last 50 years, has been overwhelmingly and disproportionately run by white men. Right. You have a fan base that, you have a fan base that provides opportunities to women, that provides opportunities to non-white people, that provides, that at least at the outset provided outlets for diverse voices shut out of the mainstream media and you have a show that's been extremely slow to catch up to the demographics and to the perspective of its fan base and that in many ways was considerably more conservative than the people watching it yeah uh, 100 percent. i mean uh 
as it's been often commented that Star Trek was not good on LGBT uh, aspects, despite the fact that, as we, as we just said, they invented the genre of slash fiction, they had a very strong LGBT fan base, uh, it was something that people took seriously as part of the fandom for Star Trek, but it took until Discovery to get uh, a, a, a canonically gay character on Star Trek, if we're putting aside Garrick, even though, again, he is, we, we all know Garrick is uh, bisexual, but or pansexual, but uh, that was never explicitly acknowledged on the show, and in fact, they took effort to sort of walk that back a little as the show went on, too, as we saw. Um, but... Um, I do think one thing you can say in the defense of the official gatekeepers of Star Trek is that they, and especially Gene Roddenberry, is that they created this thing. Uh, it it kept going of its own, partly of its own volition throughout the seventies. Uh, although it's worth noting that Roddenberry knew how to work the fans as well. Again, we last episode we compared him to Stan Lee, and he he was he was like that in the same sense. He would he would go in there among the fans, and he'd he'd whip them up. He went to to conventions, and he knew that that was something that was helping his career a lot. Uh, you know, so it's cynical if you like, but he, he was very much uh, happy to encourage this fan base. Uh, but it did kind of go on without him to an extent. And to Roddenberry's great credit, and to the credit of other people who have worked on Star Trek over the years, um, they looked at that and they acknowledged that. And they went, okay, this is what Star Trek is. They let the fans define it. As we said, if you just look at the original series and the official Star Trek media up until Next Generation, you don't see this utopian... Or you see a utopian future, but it's defined in the way Gene Roddenberry wanted it defined. The fans started to redefine it differently to be vastly more inclusive, to be, uh, you know, to think a little more outside the box of the uh, the baby boomer World War II era idea of what was uh, utopian and what was a positive future. Uh, and they, they turned around and they incorporated that into the show. Uh, they did not ignore it. They didn't decide it. So they didn't say, no, 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 shut up. This is canon. This is what canon is. Um, in, uh, I have a friend, uh, Andrew Hickey, uh, who was writing a bit about um, the, uh, we've had him on my other podcast one or two times. Uh, he was writing about uh, the Crisis on Infinite Earths. He made, he wrote some essays about that. Uh, he said something that I thought was really interesting, which is, um, uh, might be a little controversial. He said that um, the impulse, that when you look at Crisis on Infinite Earths, uh, what you have is the, um, uh, the corporate entity that is DC Comics coming down and saying to uh, the superhero universe of the DC universe, okay, this is the formal version that we're going with from now on. We're getting rid of all these alternative uh, realities, all these parallel realities, all these might-have-beens and what-ifs, and, you know, and, and these were all formally part of DC, but still, because of the thin tissue between writers and fans, you had a lot of sort of uh, hands coming in and, and reshaping superhero universe in a way that was similar to Trek, as we talked about in the last episode. Uh, but eventually they kind of sat, sat down and say, well, you know what? We're going to formalize it. This is the canon. This is what it is. We're getting rid of all that extra stuff. This is, this is what the DC universe is from now on. And actually Star Wars, of course, eventually did something similar with the expanded universe as well. And as it's a little harsh to say this, but it seems undeniably true. The impulse to do that to lock down storytelling into that narrow a field and to say this is this is this is what we have declared to be the correct way of telling the story. Um, if you follow that road too far, you essentially get fascism. Um, that that is the the you know everything has to stay on model um, is a natural impulse in humanity when it comes to storytelling, but it's also the 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 impulse that makes societies authoritarian and and uh, and and un uh, unflexible and 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 prejudicial and um, to its credit Star Trek has never really had that big moment there have always been constant argues about Canon and trying to establish a Canon but it lets all the non-canonical stuff thrive and exist in the without having to have someone come in and say no no, no that's not real get out of here we don't care about that that's not Canon I mean the the natural evolution of 
the story makes some things become redundant or or non-canon, but it's never forcibly ejected from canon. It still stays as part of the body of Star Trek that's out there. And, and it's been something that has, I think, made it uh, one of the healthier fan bases, maybe. <laughs> I think I completely agree that I think the final stage of that classifying impulse of deciding definitively that these things are canon, these things are not, this counts and this doesn't, is a universe which is completely pristine, completely ordered, and utterly dead. And what's more, I think in circumstances where, as I said, TV has been produced by a set of people who are not representative of the fan base at large, ultimately it's not just prioritising one form of Star Trek over another in a completely value-neutral way. You're prioritising the form of Star Trek that has been produced by wealthy white men who live in Los Angeles over the forms of Star Trek that are not produced by wealthy white men in Los Angeles. And in doing so, you enshrine a particular model of Star Trek which offers considerably less appeal and which ultimately is considerably less responsive to change and adaptation and the needs of people outside the precise slice of people who make that type of Star Trek. So I think I I completely agree. I think that classifying impulse is an authoritarian one. I think it's a dangerous one. And I think Star Trek is far better off if it permits a wide spectrum of debate and disagreement over what the universe looks like and what happens in the margins. The one exception that I'd offer to that in terms of... Not an exception, but the one way in which Gene Roddenberry did actually push back against the fan conception of Star Trek is that in the motion picture novelization, which we talked about in the last episode, he does have Kirk explicitly address slash fiction and say, now Spock might respond to this with a single raised eyebrow, but I have to assure you my relationship with Spock has been nothing but platonic. Uh, yes, yes. And I think that's fascinating for a couple of reasons. One is that even in a universe in which Gene Roddenberry was prepared to admit for non-monogamous human relationships and a human society that looked nothing like that of the 1970s, that was the one line that he was not prepared to cross. But secondly, the slash fiction was so widely represented in the fandom at that stage that Gene Roddenberry felt the need to explicitly address it and to say, I hear what you're saying and I respect your perspective, but no. Which again speaks yes. to the fact that it wasn't an equal, that, that it wasn't purely a monolithic um, Gene Roddenberry tells the fans what is and what isn't. It is to some extent a conversation in terms of Roddenberry engaging at least with fan voices. And if Star Trek loses that and if Star Trek sets down explicit rules on what happened and what didn't, then ultimately it loses a good deal of its power to inspire people. Right. And I mean, it's, it it is, I, 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 there's a, there's a, we want to do an episode that's more explicitly about this uh, down the road, but in some ways, the idea of seeing it from different perspectives is actually baked into Star Trek at this point, not necessarily right from the start. Although you could argue the fact that it was, an animated series so soon after being a live-action series may have played a role in this. But by the time you get to um, the movies, that and then Next Generation, and especially once you start to get things like Enterprise and Discovery, uh, there's this sense of, well, okay, we're going to go back to the past of Star Trek, and we're going to show the Enterprise as it was other, under Captain Pike or whatever. But, hey, it looks totally different. It looks like a 2000 and 2010 era uh production value um in the way and and nobody at any point tries to rationalize that away well the the one exception is when uh we saw the old versions of the klingons on deep space nine and they had to they had to they they started having a big fight over uh you know whether uh we we had to come up with a rationalization for why they didn't look like Worf. you had Worf, and you had uh, trouble with turbos era klingons existing in the same space and you had to the, the, the show actually sort of was brought up short and had to conflict with itself in that way. But for most of its existence, yeah. Star Trek has very openly just said, okay, you know how it looked in the 60s? Well, this is how it looks now, even though we're looking at supposedly the same time frame. We are in no way going to fight it and try to make it look like it did in the 60s or try to rationalize away the 60s. You can argue that um, that's what Roddenberry's doing a bit in the aforementioned uh, uh, original series, 
uh, forward where he tries to say, well, that was the TV show view within the world of Star Trek. But because of that, um, people have always been, I think more Trek fans have been more willing than some other fan bases to just sort of roll with it. That There's all these different uh, iterations of, of the story. Um, it's also significant, I think, that uh, by the time the movies came up, we, we mentioned this uh, briefly in the other one, um, the other episode, but um, ne- uh, the motion picture came out. Runbury had a lot of say in it. A lot of people seem to feel that Runbury was a bit of an anchor on the motion picture. Um, and he kind of got shuffled out of the Star Trek, certainly the movies, uh, uh, backstage premise. So then he played a big role in Next Generation. So technically there was a period in which you had two competing Star Treks that were fighting each other to a certain degree. Um, that's always, and again, that's something that you were kind of seeing in the 70s as well, because uh, the motion picture came out of uh, Phase 2. Actually, Douglas, do you want to tell us about Phase 2 a bit? Because you know a bit more about it than I do. I would love to. Um, in addition to a complete set of James Blish novelizations, my high school library also contained a copy of Judith and Garfield Reeves Stevens' Star Trek Phase 2, a complete guide to the unproduced Star Trek series of the 1970s. This was presumably in our school library on the basis that, well, the children have to learn about tech war sooner or later. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, our, our school library mostly consisted of books that have been banned by other schools. Um, so, Star Trek Phase 2 was a proposed revival of Star Trek in the late 1970s, which ultimately evolved into Star Trek The Motion Picture. Um, they got so far as developing sketches for about 13 episodes, including complete scripts for a few. But ultimately, the series did not proceed. The series would have involved the return of most of the cast of the original series, critically not including Leonard Nimoy, but with two new characters, Lieutenant Jean, a young Vulcan who in many ways prefigures Data in terms of a more innocent and idealised model of a, p- a person without emotions, without the same degree of internal turmoil that Spock has, and Lieutenant Ilya, who would have been in many ways, uh, equivalent to the same character in the movies, but who also prefigures in many ways Lieutenant Troy from Next Generation. Star Trek Phase 2 is a a really interesting historical what-if, because it amounts effectively to an attempt to produce more of the original series in the late 1970s. In some respects, you see the show having moved forward. There was a proposed two-parter about the Klingons, which would have delved into their culture to a much greater degree, prefiguring some of the work that John Ford did in the 1980s and that the next generation ultimately picked up on. But by and large, it is an episodic science fiction show about Captain Kirk and crew having adventures, just as if the show had continued in 1969. Judith and Garfield Reeves Stevens suggests that if the show had gone forward to series, it would have been very rapidly cancelled, and that (laughs) afterwards there would have been no real appetite for Star Trek movies at all. And I'm inclined to agree. The surprising thing about Phase 2 is the extent to which it does reflect no real awareness that Star Trek had moved on in the 1970s, that there were new models of how to tell Star Trek stories being set up in the licensed novels, in fan fiction, that you didn't have to use Star Trek simply to produce episodes that could have aired as episodes of the original series. That's something which is, to some extent, borne out by the motion picture, which, for better or for worse, is considerably broader in scope than an episode of the original series would be. But that ultimately speaks to one of Gene Roddenberry's fatal limitations, that his openness to new philosophical ideas, that his openness to um, political uh, political progress was not married by a particularly progressive view of television production, that he was surprisingly conservative in his view of what Star Trek is, even though that idea... He was consistently attached to particular ideas of what Star Trek is, even though those ideas changed over time. He was willing to permit contradiction and inconsistency in himself, but not but once he decided on a new idea of what Star Trek is, he stuck to it. Mm. And so Star Trek Phase 2 is ultimately a fascinating d- 
depiction of a show and of a man frozen in time and of the need for the series to ultimately adapt if it was going to survive. Hmm. Well, that's, see, now that's interesting. I read a review of the first, uh, the pilot for Phase 2, which essentially got rewritten into the motion picture, as I understand it. Um, basically, yes. uh, they Paramount was going to turn Phase 2 into um, the movie, uh, it, or was going to turn Phase 2 into a series. Uh, I think that fed in from Star Wars, but then they actually got, uh, like, Star Wars had already existed when they relaunched Phase 2. But they, they got... Uh, bigger and bigger dreams and they decided what the heck we're going to do a full-on uh, motion picture rather than a, a show and that's basically what killed phase two um so that is interesting uh in that regard but i've the review that i read said suggested that it worked far better as a pilot than as a motion picture that it was actually um a much tighter script and that roddenberry rewriting it into a, a movie had not worked as well um so I guess there were what, like about thirteen episodes, uh, thirteen scripts written for Phase Two. Is that is that right? So, something like that. There were th there were I think there were two scripts in the Phase Two book. One of which is in Thy Image, which is the pilot, which was adapted into the movie. Mm -hmm. I don't care particularly much for either the movie or for In Thy Image, mm. um, but certainly. Certainly, I would much prefer the motion picture if it was considerably shorter. So, in my image, has that advantage to it. <laughs> um, I think there were thirteen episodes for which there were concrete ideas of what happens. I don't know if for each of them there was a settled final script, as there was in for the child and for in my image. Um, but there were thirteen episodes worth of content there. And the remarkable thing going through it is that as much as the Reeves Stevens present, this could have been a fascinating adventure story, or this interestingly prefigures uh, this, for example, future episode of The Next Generation. None of them leap out at you as being stories that absolutely needed to be told, or as stories that provide a compelling example of why Star Trek needed to come back. Mm. Many of them are strongly influenced by episodes of the original series. Many of them are one-line ideas that don't go anywhere particularly interesting. They really do speak to the idea that Star Trek should come back because it's Star Trek, rather than because there was any particularly compelling story which ought to be told, or indeed because it's a story that would be interesting in its own merits if it were not Star Trek. Oh. And I think that's part of why Ross of Khan ultimately revitalizes the franchise, because it's a story that's compelling, that builds upon what happens in the original series, but which is actually interesting in its own merits without assuming pre-existing warmth on the part of the audience that because it's Star Trek, you're going to watch it. That's a good point. Uh, yeah, that's that's really interesting. I mean, who's, who's to say one way or another? Uh, but it, it is definitely, The Next Generation is clearly a lot more interesting uh than phase two would have been because phase two would have just been more star trek but with better effects kind of thing um yes <laughs> um it, there's one thing i i'm sort of uh i think we're we're heading towards uh wrapping up here but i did want to mention one other uh element of this uh, tension that we're talking about between um Maybe in this case, it's not quite proper to say fans. We talked about the various voices that were behind the scenes on Star Trek. Um, in uh, the current, the, of the three current uh, versions of Star Trek that exist, which are uh, Discovery, Picard, and Lower Decks, uh, two of them have black women as their leads. And uh, Picard, of course, is about Picard, but he's got, uh, it, it still has a very uh, significant character who's a black woman as well. Um, and I think um, if you go back a little bit, um, uh, my favorite movie personally is uh, First Contact, uh, which very notably has um, uh, a big uh, has the character played by uh, Alfred Woodard, uh, who is um, who who basically gets to tell Picard off. Uh, in a way that a lot of characters in the show never got a chance to do that. <laughs> um, and uh, I think uh, so this is something that's been running through the, uh, the background of Star Trek for a while. We talked about how there were people who wanted Star Trek to be one thing, and it was very dominated by white men. Um, there was a woman named uh, Ande Richardson, 
who was Jean L. Kuhn's personal assistant. So she wasn't a fan. She was actually part of the behind-the-scenes team, in a sense, of Star Trek. Um, and she apparently had long conversations with uh, Jean L. Kuhn. Uh, this is a woman who uh, actually uh, apparently personally knew Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Uh, had a big role in, uh, I, I think she was in the Black Panthers. She played a big role in uh, Black Liberation in the 60s. And this was someone who had a pipeline directly to someone who was one of the major authors of Star Trek at the time. Um, and uh, she has some things to say in the in the 50-year voyage about, she's she doesn't pull punches about Roddenberry. She's, she, she's pretty, uh, she's pretty uh, unimpressed with Roddenberry. But she really liked uh, Gene L. Kuhn, though. She was very impressed with him. And uh, they had a very close yeah. uh, relationship. And um, it's funny because I think that, and then when you have someone like Nichelle Nichols, you've got um, women, and especially black women, have been a part of Star Trek, and then in the fan base, of course. Uh, women of color have played a big role that is often unacknowledged in, in Star Trek. And um, I think that is, subtextually, that's part of what First Contact is about. And that's one of the things that I think is cool about it. Uh, it's very easy to see uh, um, Zephyr Cochran in that movie as Roddenberry. Uh, the guy who everyone reveres, who thinks he's the great, who everyone thinks, and I mean, of course, he created Warp Drive. Of course, he's a great, iconic man. But when they meet him, he's a guy who says, well, all I really wanted was to make a buck, and I don't even like yeah. flying, <laughs> basically. Um, but he's got a, a woman next to him, and for part of the movie, she's with him, but also she's part of, she's with uh, Picard for part of the movie. And in both cases, she's the one who is setting the white man, the great man, straight on what needs to be done, and who is given by Picard this sort of vision of a better tomorrow, but also, you know, brings him back to Earth in many crucial ways. I think that's what's being reflected there, and I think that's what's being reflected in uh, modern-day Star Trek when they've finally uh, decided to foreground women of color in the new shows. I mean, I think that was something that's been... A long time coming in Trek, but it was absolutely something that's been baked into Trek uh, for for decades and is now being acknowledged. Yeah, I, I think that's a fascinating take on First Contact, and I complete. I think the analogy between Cochrane and Roddenberry is perfect. Yeah. Um, I, I similarly think. I think. I, if I was going to show a Star Trek movie to someone who didn't like Star Trek, I would show them first contact and i think lily is a really really important part of that because part of the and this goes back to our discussions about who owns star trek part of the difficulty with star trek is that it can be pompous that it can lack humility that it can become airless and sterile and just trekkies talking to trekkies and if part of the benefit of lily in the movie is that she comes from outside the very comfortable framework of the Next Generation cast and is willing to hold those characters to account and hold them up to their values in a way that you can't do from within that bubble. And similarly, if we celebrate a... If we impose a particular narrative upon Star Trek of what is and is not Star Trek, or if we impose a particular narrative upon Star Trek of, for example, as the product of one creator or elevate Gene Roddenberry to the idea that it is somehow his vision, then ultimately it becomes airless and sterile because Star Trek is the product of this enormous cacophony of voices and saying that there's one way to be Star Trek and not others ultimately merely privileges the loudest and most powerful of those voices, which disproportionately tends to be um, people who already have power in society. Right. And I think that that's... Uh... It's it's this is a very good direction for uh, Trek to be uh, moving in as well. I think that this is this is very much being true to Star Trek, uh, the the fact that they're doing that and this is being acknowledged. Um, so I think we're uh, I think we're about done for this episode. Uh, was there anything else specific you wanted to mention, or have we covered everything? You think? No, I think that just about covers everything. I think that a lot of this ties into debates that we're going to be having in future. Just all I want to say by way of closing, the 1970s is a really, really exciting time for Star Trek, even in From the Ashes of Cancellation, because the modern show isn't purely a product of 79 episodes that aired in the late 1960s. It's 
really the product of how those episodes have been interpreted, how they have been debated, and how they have been discussed by fans. Some elements of that discussion have filtered through, others haven't, but the fact of that debate is what helped keep those episodes alive, and it's that which is really the base of modern Star Trek fandom and the base of so much that is essential and crucial about yeah. the show now. Absolutely. I, 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 it really is, and when we're talking about this, we're not just talking about Star Trek, we're talking about the entire fan culture, the entire, you know, the internet wouldn't be the way, the way it is without Star Trek fans, <laughs> which may not be a glowing endorsement of Star Trek fans. But nevertheless, um, you know, everything that we know about pop culture, even though Star Trek has never been the big one for pop culture, you know, Star Wars kind of overshadows it, arguably superheroes overshadow it, but Star Trek has been such a foundational thing to our culture via its interaction with the fans and and everything that we think of as you know nerd culture and pop culture is t at the very least tied into star trek one way or another and it, it, it's really fascinating and this was this was kind of uh the purest era for it but in general it's still the pure it's always the purest uh iteration of that uh that aspect of of our of our culture so um, I think we're, uh, we're, we're about done for this episode. Uh, again, uh, I just want to remind you, I'm Adam Prosser. Uh, I do have another podcast, uh, What Mad Universe, which is at neversleepsnetwork.com slash series slash what-mad-universe. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at prankster36. Um, I plug my pluggables because I'm a uh, bohemian artsy guy and uh, Douglas has a real career. Uh, <laughs> so uh, uh, that's why I'm sort of dominating that thing. Um, but uh, we hope you'll tune in uh, next time uh, as we go forward on this Star Trek podcast. Live long and prosper. And I'll see you on the other side.